My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilton Hills Church. Uh, I do some of the preaching and, and most of the rapping, as you can tell. As I, I finally found my calling in life. We are continuing our series here on uh, the great reversal, talking about the various ways that the kingdom of God reverses ordinary expectations. And um, how really to understand the kingdom, you've got to turn everything upside down. And so this is our sixth uh, message in this series. We're finishing up the story of the prodigal son that we began last week. And this one is called Confronting the Upside Down. Or Confronting Upside Down? Yeah. Confronted by Upside Down. You'd think after the third service I would have got the title right at least. Crying out loud. But Confronted by Upside Down because this is what's going to happen to this elder son. Now last week we talked about the story of the prodigal son. Oh, there's this guy, and he goes and uh, wants his inheritance ahead of time and tells the dad, basically, I, I can't wait for you to die. I want my inheritance now. He goes out and he squanders the whole thing on prostitutes and reckless living, ends up working on a pig farm, comes to his senses, makes his way back, and the father runs and embraces him and, and all that wonderful stuff. If you, did, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get the message. Uh, this week, we're finishing up that parable by looking at the elder son. The story ends with the elder son. So this is Luke 15. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. He was working. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. That's the celebration that the father was, was throwing for his son that returned. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Well, your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. In other words, he's throwing the biggest celebration he could possibly throw. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he's no brother of mine, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What's up with this? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Confronted by, upside down. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, open the eyes and the ears of everyone in this auditorium and everyone listening through podcasts or television or any other means. Open our hearts to receive your word. God, to humble us, uh, to learn what we're supposed to learn from this message. Anoint it, Lord. What we know is that human speech can do nothing unless your spirit is using it. So Holy Spirit, will you take this and give it your authority and build the kingdom in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our communities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't think any of us would have too much trouble empathizing with this older brother. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you have been, you felt, treated unfairly? Uh, most of us have. I, uh, when, when I was going to grad school... I, I was always a part-time pastor, but I also did every other job I could get my hands on to earn a living while going to school full-time because I had two kids and a wife to support, and, and so I took every job that, that would pay well. I uh, washed windows for a while, I dug ditches, uh, picked rocks. I one time was 
Um, I had to count pennies and put them in the little rollers. Uh, a real detailed job that drove me absolutely insane. I only lasted one day on that job, but I had to mention it because I suffered so terribly. I was a masonry laborer for a while, uh, mixing, uh, you know, uh, cement and, and hauling bricks and all of that kind of stuff. I was a limousine driver for a while. I, I, I just did everything I could get my hands on to make a living. One of the jobs I did, oh, I, I also built three season porches for a while with a friend of mine uh, who owned this company, and I was absolutely terrible at that. I, in the whole summer, didn't get get one measurement right. I, I, I don't know what it is. I, I swear the ruler would change once we went to cut it. But anyways, <laughs> manual labor just isn't my gig. But uh, one of the jobs I did was cleaning pools in Princeton, New Jersey. When I was going to Princeton, uh, there was a pool cleaning company. And every spring, they would go to the homes of these wealthy people and, and clean out their pools, unload the old water, wash the thing, put new water in, get the chemicals all straightened out, and yada, yada, yada. So I took this job and uh, actually was promoted after a couple of weeks uh, to the level of supervisor because I so impressed the boss with my pool cleaning skills. <laughs> then I was given, a couple of days after I started as supervisor, I was given this guy as part of my team. We had a team of four. We'd get in these orange trucks and drive out and clean the pools. And I was given to work with this guy. His name was Vito. God bless Vito. Uh, he's this big, humongous, 300-pound Italian 19-year-old who I believe was poss- possibly the laziest creature that has ever walked the face of this earth. He hated uh, work like cyanide or something. He was allergic to work. So he's on my team. Vito, who has got all this strength, would not lift anything. I mean, it's just sort of understood that, you know, we had to take out the big machines and bring them to the pool. And, and as you're cleaning out the truck, when you, when you come to a big machine, it's your turn to carry it. And it just sort of works. Everyone does their job. Everyone pulls their weight. And so, but, but, but Vito would never carry anything heavy. Poor Vito. He would always carry the, the wrench or something light. Um, sometimes he'd just disappear on the job. We're working our rear ends off. And, and, and then it's like, where's Vito? Well, he's behind the bush eating potato chips. Or twice we found him sleeping in the, in, in the van. And this gets very, very irritating. He would always avoid the more unpleasant parts of the job, like cleaning the filters after they've been sitting there all winter long. Sometimes you find dead animals uh, in these filters, and it's really, really gross. You've, you've never seen anything so gross in your life. And then you have to remove those mostly decomposed creatures. And their fur comes off. And I have a real weak stomach. So there were times, I'm not kidding, where I would be cleaning out the filter, taking this rabbit out, and I'm going, you know, up chucking. But I did it. I liked it that way. Why? Because I'm a man. Arr! But Vito wouldn't. Vito wouldn't clean the filters. The, I, the understanding was when you came upon one, uh, a, a filter with an animal, you, it was your time to clean it. And, and we all got one of those a week or so, but Vito never found one. But what was happening is if he ever saw a dead animal in there, he'd move on and act like he was you know, trying to clean the next one. So he never picked out the dead animals. We're getting really mad at Vito. And the hardest part of the job was we had to pour acid on these pools uh, to, to like, get all the scum off and stuff. And this acid was, was like this hot, burning stuff, and it got in your lungs, and it got in your eyes, and it really was nasty. You had to like, put stuff over your mouth so you wouldn't ruin your lungs. It was nasty, but we had to do it. It's part of the job. But Vito wouldn't do it. He wouldn't. He'd always got occupied with something else, like eating potato chips behind the, the shrubbery while we're pouring the acid. So finally one day I say, Vito, here's the deal. I'm the boss. You get down there and you pour some acid. 
Uh, we're, we're all taking our turns on this. And he goes, oh, I just can't. It's just, it irritates my lungs. Well, yeah, it irritates everyone's lungs. But it hurts my eyes. It hurts everyone's eyes. Get down there. And he starts whimpering. 300-pound Italian veto. I can't do this. I can't do this. He's pouring away. He's whimpering. It's like, ah. And so I, you know, finally, I confronted him. That was the last time he poured the acid. I, I later on said, look, either you do this regularly with the rest of us or I'm going to fire you. I'm so tough when I need to be. All that stuff, I talk about Christ-like grace and love, whatever. It doesn't apply to employment situations. Sometimes I, He's got unsurpassable worth, but he's a lazy butt. I have to take care of this. So, so I say, then he goes, you don't have the authority to fire me. And I said, okay, you know what? You're fired. You walk home. I was really mad. Next day, the boss calls me into his office and says, I hear you fired Vito. And I said, yeah, I fired him. He wasn't doing his work. Da, da, blah, 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 blah. He goes, you don't have authority to fire Vito. I go, I'm a supervisor. He goes, yeah, but I'm your boss, and I have to give the okay to fire, and I don't want to fire him. So I said, boss, he doesn't do any work, blah, 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 blah. The boss says, ah, too bad. You have to work with him. This is not making me happy. Later on that same day, I find out that Vito is making more money than I'm making on the job. In fact, he's the highest paid person on the whole team. This doesn't endear Vito to any of us. So at the end of that day, I go to the boss, and I say, boss, I want to raise. I want to make at least more than Vito's making because I'm doing four times the work. I have four times the responsibility and he's doing squat. I want a raise. And the boss says, Greg, look at, I gave you a raise four weeks ago when I made you a supervisor. In fact, more than I had to. Uh, and you were very happy with that. Do you remember? You're happy with it. So you're getting what you agreed to get. What is it to you if I give Vito more? In fact, if I want to give him a million dollars, that's no business of yours. Be happy for the job that you have. Now he had a point. But it's an irritating point, isn't it? (laughs) The rest of the summer, I got to work with this Vito. And now that he knows he's unfireable, what happened is that Vito was the son of the boss's best friend who put up all the money to start the company. So, you know, this is very, there's something deep inside of us that longs for fairness, especially when we feel we're the ones being shortchanged by the whole thing. There's just a sort of installed quid pro quo mindset, which means you should get what you deserve, equal pay, equal work. Uh, You know, that's how things should operate. When somebody who's working one fourth as much as you is getting more money than you, it's irritating. And so we can understand how this elder brother would be irritated by this situation. He's the good guy here. I mean, you're just judging how this younger brother acted when he went to his father and said, I want the inheritance. This guy couldn't have been pleasant to grow up with. Younger brother, he obviously doesn't care about dad, obviously doesn't like to do any kind of work. He's obviously irresponsible. The firstborn, older brother, he's carrying the shoulder for all the jobs, all the responsibility. I imagine this little dweeb was hard to live with. Part of him was probably really happy when, when the, the younger brother left. And then he goes out and he squanders all the money, all his inheritance, is sleeping with prostitutes while the, the older brother's being the good Jewish boy and staying chaste or, or whatever, but he's not sleeping with prostitutes. Blows all the money, works on a pig farm, dishonors the family name, then has the gall to come back. And when he comes back, does dad ream him out? No. Does dad punish him? No. Does dad give him a payment, payment back, a payback program? No. He throws him the biggest party anyone on that mansion has ever seen. Bigger than the, the older brother's ever gotten. Wouldn't you think that this would be a great time to make an object lesson out of this and, and reward the older brother for sticking around and doing what he's supposed to do and all the good work? And, and, and he should get the big fat and calf party, but instead it goes to this younger brother who squandered everything. You can, you know, that would be irritating. That'd be irritating. And yet, 
The point of this passage is to say this is what the kingdom of God is like. There's a side to the kingdom of God that can be irritating. A a side of the kingdom of God that just isn't fair. It's not fair. And, uh, and, and it, it's, in fact, this comes out in a number of Jesus' teachings. Uh, you remember Matthew 20, uh, the story of the vineyard. There's a guy who's got a vineyard. He needs some work to be done. So he goes out first thing in the morning, hires some people. Goes out in the afternoon, hires some people. Then, an hour before they, they close shop, goes out and hires some more people. And then when they do close up shop, he pays them all the same, a day's wages. So the people who only worked one hour got the same as the people who worked 12 hours. Well, the people who work 12 hours are ticked off at this. And they go to the the boss and they go, wait a minute, we work 12 times as much as as these guys. How come you give them the same pay? And Jesus says, the owner of the vineyard, said basically what the boss said to me. Uh, Well, wait a minute, I gave you what we agreed, right? You got treated fairly. You should be happy about this. If I want to give them more, what business is that of yours? Uh, You know, you, you shouldn't be jealous over this thing. Well, he's got a point, but there's something irritating about this. There's a part of the kingdom of God that just doesn't square with our sense of fairness. The kingdom of God is not about fairness. The kingdom of God is about something more profound. Now, to get at this thing that's more profound, let's ask this question. Why has this story of the prodigal son been one of the most famous stories in all of history? It's one of the best known stories and most beloved stories uh, in the Bible. And it has been throughout history. Why is that? What, what, what is the power of this story? I want to suggest to you that part of the power of this story is that it's not a story about being fair. The world is full of stories about being fair. If the father had acted the way the elder son wanted the father to act, if the father had chastised the son, made him work back his status, go 10 years as a slave, and then give him back the status of son or, or things of that sort, that would have just been one of the millions and millions of stories we have about how good deeds are rewarded and bad deeds are punished. We've heard that a million times. And if this story was about that, I doubt it would really have captured the attention and affection of people throughout history. What makes this story powerful is that it goes beyond fairness. A story about a a father who chastises his son for squandering all the inheritance, that would have made the story more fair, but it would have made it less beautiful. A father who put his son back on a repayment program to punish him for the misdeeds, and then a father who who threw a party for the older son to reward him for sticking around, that would have been a fairer story than the one we have, but it would have been less beautiful. A story of of a father who, rather than judging his son, runs with compassion towards his son and who embraces his son and then puts the ring on the finger of the son and the robe around the son and then kills the fatted calf for the son and throws a party for the son, not even allowing the son to grovel or to give a speech. That's not a fair story, but it is a profoundly beautiful story, isn't it? And it's beautiful precisely because it's not fair. No, it's a story... And this, this is the point of, 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 of Jesus telling it. It's a, it's a story of the kingdom of God that goes way beyond our categories, our ethical categories of fair, and, and even our ethical categories of justice. 
It's a story about a God who is beautiful precisely because he goes way beyond fairness. He's a God of extravagant love and a God of extravagant grace. A God who's willing to run down the street and look foolish to embrace a son who could deserve it less. Uh, It's a story about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God can't be reduced to our categories of fairness. The kingdom of God goes way beyond that. It's a story about extravagant love and extravagant love goes way beyond fairness and sometimes even goes against our categories of fairness. But that's the nature of the kingdom of God. And in fact, and here's the point of this, this, this parable, you can't see the beauty, the extravagant, lavish beauty of the kingdom of God. And the extravagant beauty of God. You can't see this as long as you're looking at it through a frame of ethical categories of fairness. Our rules and fairness categories. You'll miss it. That's why the elder son here is unable to see the beauty of the father. Uh, and uh, unable to see the beauty of the, the reconciliation that's taking place here. He's looking at this feeling sorry for himself because he's looking at the world with the spectacles of fairness that filter out extravagant beauty. He's locked in his world of ethical fairness categories. Now, it's easy to get locked in the world of ethical fairness categories, and I suspect at least some of us listening here are locked in that. Um, the elder son was locked. That's why he couldn't see the beauty of what was going on. We're, we, are, we are from the start given uh, these categories of fairness. Our mothers always tell us that life isn't fair, but they always try to make us fair. They set us up for, for, for frustration. Um, and so you learn from a young age that, that, that you're supposed to be fair. Life's supposed to be fair even though it often is not. What, what is Christmas about? Now, we would say Jesus, but come on, really now. In America, what is Christmas about? It's about presents, and who gets presents? Good boys and girls get presents, and who doesn't get presents? Bad boys and girls. You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And he's ticked off. You better shave up, you little dweeb, or you're not going to get any presents. I was always really good for about two weeks before Christmas. December was my good month. Little angel boy. Because I didn't want, you know, that, that's good behavior is rewarded, bad behavior is punished. Isn't that how the world's supposed to work? That's how Santa Claus works. And, and so from a very young age, we're given these categories of, of fairness and rules and ethics. And then our whole society runs on that. I mean, all laws are, are premised on the attempt to be fair. And, and, and all politics is an attempt to try to get a little bit more fair. And the world really couldn't, couldn't run very well if, we, if society abandoned those categories. So the world's steeped in these categories of fairness. Most religion is about reinforcing categories of fairness and justice and ethics. That's why most people believe it's as simple as if you're good, then God will let you into heaven. And if you're bad, then God's going to send you to hell. Even though that's very not New Testament-ish, but that's kind of the common sense ethical interpretation of the Bible. Or if you're part of an Eastern religion, the idea is that if you're good, you accrue good karma and you'll be reincarnated as a prince. But if you're bad, you accrue bad karma and you'll be reincarnated as a guinea pig or a frog or a mosquito or a centipede. And you'll get stepped on by the prince or something like that. So the idea here is that God or the ultimate reality is there to reinforce the rules of fairness. So it's easy to get stuck. It's easy to get stuck in fairness. 
It's easy to get stuck in the, in the categories of ethics. And there's a place for ethics, yes. And there's a place for fairness, of course. But see, if we live there, if that becomes our highest good, and it is for many people, because we're trained in this, then it becomes something evil. Because it blocks us from seeing and participating in the most important thing, which is the transforming experience of the extravagant love of God and participating in the extravagant love of the kingdom. If you're living in the realm of the ethical, if those are the spectacles you wear, it blocks you from that. Yes, we need ethics, but we've got to go beyond the ethics to see a, a, a kind of love which transcends it and even sometimes seems to go against it. Marriages, for example, marriages ought to be ethical, right? I mean, you ought to have fairness. And some of our marriages need to be a little more fair. You know, if the guy gets a night out, the, the, the wife should get a night out. I mean, it's, it's about being fair, amen? Uh, but look at marriages should go beyond that, right? I, I, if you had a marriage that was defined by fairness, the whole goal of the marriage is to be fair, well, yuck. I mean, that's going to be a, a marriage where, where everyone's keeping score. You owe me, and now I did this for you, and nothing's going to be free. There's not going to be any extravagant love. There's not going to be any extravagant grace. There can be no forgiveness because forgiveness, by definition, is not fair. Forgiveness is about letting someone off the hook, not, not letting them get what they deserve. If, if the goal of a marriage is just to be fair, well, it's like two people are going to be constantly suing one another. Uh, yuck. There's not going to be any real love there. You need fairness in a marriage, but you've got to go beyond fairness if you're going to have anything that you can really call a marriage, anything that has extravagant love. It's the same way with our life. We need to be uh, ethical in our treatment of other people. But if you're a kingdom person, you've got to go beyond ethics, way beyond ethics. We're called to something far more profound than that. If you live in an ethical mode in your treatment of other people, what will happen is you begin to assess everybody according to your little ethical rule system. You become little Mr. or Mrs. Judger. Uh, you, you, you're always evaluating. You're always assessing things. You're always gossiping about people in your brain. You're always sizing them up. You're always comparing and contrasting. That, you, you got a little judgment mechanism going on inside of your head. And if you are living in that judgment mode, you can't possibly can't possibly love them like Christ loves you. You can't be ascribing unsurpassable worth to all people at all time because you're too busy evaluating and judging and assessing them. Yes, we need ethics, but we're called to be a people who go beyond that and live in extravagant love. And if we live in this ethical mode, what happens is it blocks our capacity to receive and give and live in and participate in the joy of the kingdom of extravagant love and grace. In fact, as I've argued elsewhere in the book Repenting of Religion, and I taught a whole series on this. Remember, some of you have been here five, six years. I I spent about a half a year on this. That the whole judgment mechanism is based on quid pro quo ethics. And it's good insofar as it goes, but it becomes evil when it keeps us from moving into love. So much so that it is why the original sin of the Bible is called eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the tree of debauchery or licentiousness or ripping people off or fornication or whatever. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because when we eat of this tree, we, 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 we think we're God. And we walk around judging everybody and every one of those judgments blocks our ascribing to them unsurpassable worth, which is what love is in the Bible. So it becomes something evil when it becomes something ultimate to us. The main problem with this elder son is that he is locked in his judgments. He's locked in his judgments. 
He's judging the father. He's judging the son. He's judging the whole situation. And that prevents him. That's like his ultimate reference point. And it keeps him from being able to see the beauty of the father, the beauty of the reconciliation with the son, and the beauty of this self-sacrifice. In fact, his judgments screw up everything as judgments always do. When you live in judgment, if you're world, if, if you're, the glasses you're wearing are sort of the glasses of fairness in this world, you'll always feel, we always distort it to ourselves. We're always the center of it, and so you, we feel cheated all the time. We become a victim. You start pitting yourself. Uh, it, it, it distorts everything when we walk around with judgment glasses, our ethical rules. When that's our main filter, well, it just distorts everything. This son, for example, he thought he was the good son. He thought he deserved the fatted calf. He thought he was being treated unfairly. But he wasn't being treated unfairly. He still had his inheritance. It didn't cost him a dime for the, for the son to come back. Uh, he wasn't getting cheated. The father said, everything I have is yours. What? What? You, you got it all. He wasn't being... Uh, but see, when you walk around with fairness, uh, you know, that, that's your grid. Before long, you start feeling like... The world's not fair to you. And this guy had so much to be grateful for, so much to be thankful for. And yet here he is wallowing in self-pity. I mean, how many people uh, get to be born into a family where you have a father that is this loving? Not that many. How many people are born in a family where they're going to get any kind of inheritance? Not that many. How many people are born into a family where you get the inheritance ahead of time? Not that many. How many people are born into a family where you're so rich you get to have servants? Not that many. How many people are born into a family where you're so rich you get to have all this opulent food all the time? Not that many. This guy has so much to be grateful for, so many blessings. A lot of people don't live to be as old as he is. In world average, a lot of people die before they get to that age. But is this guy thankful for that? Or He didn't do anything to deserve this privileged position or all this wealth. But here he is, he can't see any of that. He filters all that blessing out. What he sees is, I didn't get a fed a calf. And so he's wallowing in self-pity. And that's how it always is. When we walk around with our little ethical rule system and we evaluate the world in terms of fairness, it blocks us from the joy of gratitude. It blocks us from the joy of extravagant love. It blocks us from seeing the beauty of forgiveness and the beauty of reconciliation. It blocks us from seeing uh, the beauty of who God is. Our judgment blocks us from the kingdom. That's where the elder son is. The advantage of the younger son, the advantage of the prodigal son is this. He had blown it. He had screwed up. He had magnificently destroyed any chance he ever had to make it in the judgment, ethical, rule, fairness system. And and, in anyone's grid, this would not be a good guy. He blew it. And that can be a wonderful advantage. Because he stopped trying to play that game. The elder son still locked in it. And therefore still blocked from love. The younger son blew it sky high. And that creates a unique opportunity for him. Folks, little caveat here. Sometimes blowing it hugely can be the best thing that ever happened to you. Depending on how you respond. I mean, you can respond bad and and you'll just blow it bigger. Uh, but it can be an advantage if you respond humbly and ask God for wisdom on how to proceed forward. There are more than a few marriages in our fellowship that the best thing that happened to them was an affair. 
because it, it exposed problems that had been there all along that they've been tiptoeing around. Now, it could be just absolutely destructive depending on how people respond, but it, it, for many, it was a turning point that gave them, that transitioned them from being having a mediocre or bad marriage to having a great marriage because now they got to a deeper level. Now, it's still bad that they had the affair, of course, and this guy should not have done what he did in blowing his father's inheritance. But given that he blew it, if you respond right, God has, in his genius, is able to turn it around to your advantage. Remember that when you've blown it. The son blew it big time. The advantage is that now he comes to his senses and he sees that the only hope for him is to come back humbly and rely on his father's good graces. And what that does is it puts him in a position where now he gets to see the father put on display his magnificent love. And he gets to see the father running down the road to him and the father embracing him and the father kissing him and the father welcoming him unconditionally. He gets to see the, the, the beauty of the father in all of his extravagant love. And that now puts him in a position to love his father more and to appreciate his father more. And none of that would have happened if he would have stayed on the farm. Uh, the elder brother doesn't see that because the elder brother doesn't have that kind of humility. But the advantage of having blown it is you opt out of that ethical system. Throughout the Gospels, it's the people who lose at the ethics game who are closer to the kingdom. That's why Jesus said the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they're getting to heaven before you guys. You Pharisees who live in your world of ethics and rules and fairness, always self-serving and self-righteous, you're blocked from the kingdom of God. But these prostitutes and this prodigal son is coming closer. He sees the Father in all of his grace. He then loves the Father. And this is why, while the older son's out there feeling self-pity in the field, the younger son's full of of humble joy. And while the older son's out there full of ingratitude, this younger son's going to be full of gratitude. And while the older son's out there in the misery of his self-serving little ethical religious system, looking at the world through that feeling, poo-hoo, too bad about me, the younger son is having a celebration And the point of this whole passage, folks, is this. We are to realize that God is like the father who runs towards the prodigal son. And we are the prodigal son. And we're to enter into the mindset of the the, the prodigal son and steer a country mile away from that rule system-based mindset of the older brother. The point is that we're to identify with this younger son because, as a matter of fact, We are there. We all have insulted our father. We all have squandered an inheritance. We've all squandered life. We do it all the time. We've all cheated on God. We've all lived in ways where we're acting as though he was dead. We've all spent some time on the pig farm. All of us are in a situation where if we're ever going to come back on the mansion, it's got to be by coming to our senses and attaining an attitude of humility. Uh, All of us are on the same playing field when it comes to this. When it comes to getting right with God, getting back on the mansion, we're all in the pig's poop. We're all in the pig farm. Uh, And the only way back is through humility and relying on the grace of the Father. Religion and society may say that you're a little better than somebody else. Your sin's not as big as somebody else. You're a little more righteous than somebody else. That's what religion and society does. They play that ethical rule game. But when it comes to getting ourselves right with God, we're to understand that we have to be as reliant on God's grace as this this younger son was on his father's grace. 
We can't earn our way back on the mansion. We can't achieve our way back on the, on the mansion. You can't say enough prayers to get you back on the mansion. You can't do enough good deeds to get back on the mansion. You can't hurdle enough hurdles to get back on the mansion. You can't pull all your way into the mansion. You've got to come by grace. You've got to come by humility. You've got to come by confessing that you are one who's on the pig farm and in and of yourself you're helpless. When it comes to getting right with God, here's an analogy I like. It's kind of like jumping the Grand Canyon on your own power. Good luck. Well, there's a mile on, to the other side of the Grand Canyon, and if you want to try to cross that on your own power, good, good luck. And let's say you and I decide to do that. So we take each other's hands and we're going to jump. Now, I may be a good jumper, and you're not a very good jumper. I can jump 10 feet, and you can only jump 2 feet. And so we jump. But see, I may be able to jump 10 feet, and you only can jump 2 feet. But as we're falling to the bottom, I don't think I'm going to be bragging to you about that fact. <laughs> what a loser you are. You only got 2 feet, I got 10. It really it becomes kind of irrelevant, doesn't it? Because we're heading to the same fate. We really are. And if someone saves us five feet from hitting the bottom, I guarantee you I will be as grateful as you will be. Because we were in the same spot. Now society judges some to be a little better than others, and some of us are a little better ethical jumpers than others. Big deal. When it comes to getting right with God, how relatively good you are and how relatively bad you are really isn't the point. It misses the point altogether. This is what the elder son doesn't get and this is what the Pharisees don't get, but this is what we have got to get. Folks, uh, we have all blown it. We've all walked away from the Father and we are all sinners who, if we're going to be saved, it's saved by grace. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The playing field is level. Uh, We're all on the same level as the pedophile and the murderer and the person who hoards more than they need while there's people who are dying because they don't have enough of what they need. It's all one and the same. So there's no room for one person standing over another or judging another or feeling righteous in response to another. I don't care if you can jump 25 feet. you got a mile to cross and you're going to end up the same spot as the person who can only jump two inches. Now the advantage of that is this. When we internalize this and collapse all of our little self-righteous stuff, it puts us in the position of the prodigal son. And now and only now, You're able to really see the beauty of the Father who runs to you despite the fact that you didn't deserve it. Now you're in a position to appreciate the beauty of the grace of God as he extends it to you when you didn't deserve it. Some folks just don't appreciate the beauty and grace of God because they really don't think that they're sinners. This is the plague of America. We all feel we're so big on our self-esteem. It's like, well, of course we deserve to go to heaven. That keeps us locked in the mindset of the the older son. We've got to get to the mindset of the younger son, folks, where we see the beauty of God who runs towards us, who embraces us when we don't deserve it. And he puts the ring of fellowship on our fingers when we don't deserve it. He, he becomes a human being and takes on our sin when we don't deserve it. And when we internalize that, we can see the beauty of who God is. And when we can internalize that, well, then we, 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 we're in a position where we can begin to love God. And you begin to feel grateful for everything that he does for you. You take nothing for granted. You don't take friends for granted. You don't take family for granted. You don't take tomorrow for granted. You don't take your next moment for granted. It's all a gift from him. It's all a matter of his grace. Everything we have is a matter of his grace. And you begin to appreciate that. And see, then when we can internalize the mindset of the older son, it frees us completely 
from walking around with our little ethical judge, judge glasses, looking at people, assessing people, sizing people up, gossiping about people in our head. It frees us from that garbage. We lose that inclination. And now we're in a position to not only receive the love of God, but begin to give the love of God, to extend God's love and grace towards all people at all times. Man, that is joy. That is peace. That is freedom. That is living. But you can only get there once you collapse all that elder brother judgment mechanism stuff. Begin to walk in the, in the love of God and, and, and attain that kind of humility. You get free of that stupid arrogance that you're better than anybody else and the stupid arrogance of thinking that you can fix somebody and the stupid arrogance of thinking that you're smart enough to run the world. And now you can just become the humble servant who loves to love and the life of God flows in you and you manifest that life to other people and that's the purpose of everything and that is joy and that is freedom. And that's what's offered when we attain the attitude of the prodigal son, the humble son, relying on the grace of God. There's one other thing that it empowers you to do when we really internalize this humble mindset. We come to our senses. The elder son could not enjoy the fact that his brother came home. Couldn't enjoy it. Couldn't enjoy the fact that his father loved him so unconditionally and threw his party. Because he was locked in his own little ethical system of fairness. You can't hope the best for everybody if you're locked in that system. You can't. Now Jesus, when he dies on the cross, the last thing he says is, Father, forgive them. I want us to see this. Here, he, he just got tortured. He just, just mind-boggling misery inflicted on him. And, and carrying the burden of the world and, and the people who, who stuck the spirit aside and put the thorns on his head and who whipped him and put the nails in his hands, they're right there. And Jesus, rather than saying, oh, they're going to get their due, he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. The elder brother wants people to get what they deserve. The kingdom, because we opt out of that system, we don't want people to get to what they deserve because we didn't get what we deserved. We want people to get the grace of God and the beauty of God. We want the younger brother who's, who doesn't deserve it to come home because we realize that we don't deserve it either. Uh, there's something about the kingdom of God where you, you long and have hope for all of your younger brothers and sisters to make it in. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that love believes the best and hopes the best of everybody. In fact, Jesus said a very important teaching here. See, this is the test case, I think, of the kingdom. This is the litmus test, if we've got it or not. Can you do this? This is it. This is the, this is the test. Uh, Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. It's a biblical command. This is simply loving the best and, or believing the best and hoping the best for everybody. To pray for them. Father, forgive them. Stephen had that attitude in Acts chapter 7. People were stoning him. A very nasty way to die. But instead of cursing them, he says, Father, forgive them. Don't leave this to their charge. That's such a kingdom heart. Oh, I, I hope... I hope they make it in somehow, some way. There's going to be a final judgment. We're warned about that. But that's God's business, not ours. Our job is to hope and to believe and, and, and to look forward to celebrating uh, every one of the younger brothers and sisters to make it back, back home. But to get there, we've got to collapse the mindset of the elder brother and attain the humility of the younger brother. The world would be a fair and just place if Osama bin Laden went to hell. But you know, it would be a fair and just place if I went to hell too. And I, for one, I'm glad it's not a fair and just place. I'm glad it's even more profound than that. It's a gracious place. Now, God will take care of the final judgment. But can I pray, Father, forgive him? Can you pray that? 
Here's, a, here's an assignment I'm going to leave you with. This is a little training camp here. Um, this is not the kingdom. This is training for the kingdom. So here's an assignment. And Holy Spirit, will you just be operating here and make us honest and real with ourselves? Who, Jesus said, Father, forgive them and told us to pray the same prayer. Who do you have the hardest time praying that for? Maybe it's Osama bin Laden. Maybe it's your mother-in-law. I, I, I don't know. But Holy Spirit, reveal to us the person who is the hardest one for us to hope makes it into heaven. That we'd have the hardest time celebrating if we see them there. As you see that person, just make a note that this is a, this is a remnant of the older brother attitude. You're still living in the fairness stuff. You want him to get or her to get what she deserves or what he deserves. And remind yourself, Holy Spirit, help us to see this, that God extended us the same grace to us and our job is to extend it to them. And so out of obedience, I want to give you this assignment. Find the person you have the hardest time hoping will be to heaven. The person you have the hardest time praying for. And I want to assign this to you to pray for them every day this week starting today. That will, for some of us, grate on us. It will, it will feel unnatural even because we're so used to the elder brother mindset. But I promise you this. If you will, out of obedience, do this and ask God, ask God to give you a slice of his heart for this person because God's heart towards this person is that he wants to run towards them, embrace them, kiss them, put the ring on the finger, put the robe around them. That's what God wants to do. Ask God to give you a little bit of that heart for him, including Osama bin Laden or whoever the person is that you have the hardest time praying for. And then out of obedience, pray for that person. Father, I pray that somehow, some way, they could see your beauty, they could find forgiveness, they could get off the pig farm, that they would experience what you've extended to me. And I, if you do that, it changes you. When Jesus said pray for our enemies, it wasn't primarily for our enemies that we do that. Though, yes, it blesses them, but it's primarily for us. You will grow in your capacity to see God's beauty and to live in that beauty as you obey him and praying for your enemies. That's your assignment. As the prayer team comes forward, I'm going to close in prayer, and I just want you to know that, that uh, if you want to pray for anything, whether it's about this message or anything else, come forward, and, and, and these folks would love to spend some time praying with you. Don't leave with whatever it is that you're carrying. Come up here and get some prayer for it. But Lord, we pray that you would give us your heart towards all people at all times. God, a heart that doesn't long for people to get what they deserve, but rather hopes for grace to persevere over what they deserve as it has done in our own life. Give us your love. Give us your grace. Help us to remember this assignment and to obey you in praying for our personal enemies, our national enemies. That we can, Lord, have the mindset of the younger son and be free of the affliction of the older son. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, go out, love on people, and build the kingdom. Love you.